Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. Uh, okay, so our uh, first poet is uh, Stacy Nall. She's from Cleveland, Ohio. She earned her undergraduate degree at Sarah Lawrence College and her MFA at the University of Alabama. And she's currently pursuing her PhD in literature and creative writing at the University of Southern California. Her first collection of poetry, Heart First Into the Forest, was published by Alice James Books, and she lives in Los Angeles. Our second poet is going to be Amber Tamblin. Uh, she's been a writer and actress since the age of nine. She was nominated for an Emmy, Golden Globe and Independent Spirit Award for her work in television and film. In 2005, Simon and Schuster published her first book of poems, Free Stallion. She is the producer of The Drums Inside Your Chest, an annual poetry concert, and nonprofit uh, Right Now Poetry Society. Her second book of poetry and prose, Bang Ditto, was released last fall. And she writes for the Poetry Foundation and lives in New York. And uh, last and certainly not least is Jeffrey McDaniel, who we're happy to have back. He's the author of four books, most recently The Endarkenment, which he'll be reading from tonight. His work has appeared in Best, Best American Poetry, 1994 and 2010. He teaches at Sarah Lawrence College and lives in New York. So please help me welcome, big welcome, our first poet, Stacey Nall. Hi, everybody. How you doing? Good. Good, great. Um, so I'm going to jump right into things here. And I'm going to start sort of with an invocation here, um, a poem addressed to the poet Frank O'Hara. And um, what it's about, I guess, is um, a feeling that I have about him. Most people think that, you know, he went off and wrote these poems sort of in 30 seconds or less, and that was sort of his MO. And I feel sort of differently about him that that was sort of um, a ruse, that he actually put a lot of time into making things look that way, um, which I think is sort of the beauty of his work. So this is addressed to Frank. And it's called, What Gets Me Today, Frank. What gets me today, Frank, world, is the multitude, the many momentaries, and the momentum passed from transient you, confident as a continent, who moved through the mongers and the motives, half man and half morale. Today, from your blocks, wafts a big band bouquet, Subway bison, chorus girl clicks, the low round growl of the moon. All the names slipped, lift where you lift them. Denby, Bonard, Coke and Joe, Pennsylvania Station. Lillian, Fanny, Sonia, Jane, all your starlets in the sky. Your hum-colored cabs sweet snag on me. This, a radiator clank, 
A cap gun banner's bang gets me today, Frank. That though it was all obligato, this you had in common with the cannibal. For all your bounds and bountiful, you always knew how to find the tender center of the city, the pulse in the pocket, your reverdy. This gets me. This sways. This really hooks jabs me today, and with it, the agony of your casual, your feigned traips. That despite the show of hands, your lines were more preen than plash. That since you spoke so plain to us, we, your hidden track, come to you like a cross street. Think we can talk that way back. Um, the next two poems I'm going to read are um, were inspired by horror films. The first one is called Pantoum Before the Killer Comes, Pantoum being the formal poem that, um, of the Pantoum. And um, I wrote it thinking about how in a lot of horror movies, sort of the first people to go are the young couple that's off having sex. <laughs> um, and yeah, it's true. Um, so this is, I guess, for, for, for them, and it's called Pantoum Before the Killer Comes. Nothing at stake in their landscape, just feet from his father's wrecker, stripped straight of restraint on the vista, they wide-eye their way toward each other. Just steps from his father's wrecker, she's soft in the yellow clover, wide-eyeing her way toward her lover, ready and open as a right answer. Hand down in the golden clover, he marvels at her minutia, open and ready as a right answer. She plants a small death on his neck. Hand marveling her minutia, her torso trills below him. On her neck, he plants a red death. Her body bends in oath beneath the oak. Her torso thrills below him, their reflection severed in the wheel rim. She bends her oath beneath the oak. The girl breathes in, the boy breathes out. Their reflection severed in the wheel rim, the sun high as a front page headline. The girl breathes out, the boy breathes in, light as the sigh before a storm. The sun bright as a front page headline, it will read in the light of day, light as their sighs before the storm, in their landscape, nothing at stake. So the next horror movie-inspired poem is called Damsel Stage Directions. And um, this one, I was thinking about um, what's been called the final girl theory, which is um, the last girl, particularly in slasher um, movies, the final girl who's left over to, um, to fend off the killer. Um, so that's what I was thinking about here, sort of my, my directions to her, what, you know, what she needs to do. So this is damsel stage directions. She must wake 
in a place she doesn't recognize, bound, surrounded by debris of other lives, find her way out. She must have broken away from the group, naive as the number one, naive as she is half naked and barefoot now, running with a limp, injury implied, a bruise slung minkwise about her neck. She must fall just once in the chase, over bramble, antler, root, the scene around her dizzy, a revolving door, stupefied by the setting, sun, and the birds, in on it too, throwing their voices, trying to confuse. She must glance always over her shoulder, gasping to lose him, to outsmart the lunatic trees, her face unfurnished, a puddle with nothing to reflect, glancing, the fish rolling back in her eyes, Blake Lakes, glance, the moon, a fat white mosquito bite, itching her on, to where she ends at an edge of road, spots a truck's grill wavering lazy in the horizon's heat, laughing a little, coughing up berry worths of blood and muttering what she can only muster, sputtering into the cement, into the dense, senseless air of summer. I made it. Okay, this next poem is called From a Dance Manual, and it has an epigraph from an Elvis Presley song. And the song is called Wooden Heart, which was adapted from an old um, German folk song. It's sung half in German and half in English. And the lines that I took um, are, treat me nice, treat me good, treat me like you really should, because I'm not made of wood and I don't have a wooden heart. And it's a song that my dad used to sing to me when I was a baby. Um, and so it's dedicated to him and it's called From a Dance Manual. Snip the cranky thing from its crib. Rest its potato-scented head against your lapel and carry its teacup weight, the world's youngest antique in your arms. Then permit the rug your promenade. Follow imagined dance map feet. Behandled Sigut. Sing, scavenger of the lowest notes. Make your way through the German verse, that bit of violence in the back of your throat. Behandled Sigut. Behandled Sigut. On TV, the second shuttle's success. Outside, the ambient logic of snow. You've lost your job. You dance. Past the mantle's burden, past each bashful knick-knack, hum, and she will grow to be gruff enough. Past the blue-gray glances from the photographs, bellow, and she will be burr-fierce. Coo. Past the wreath, the hearth, the paisleys in their frenzy on the ironing board, sway, and she will chase ghosts and wolves away. Twist, and men will treat her well. Whirl. Past the patience of the piebald hobby horse, treat her good, treat her good. Sing, and the thing will fossilize. Dance, and it will petrify. Her heart will be a beating bit of bark. The handled sikut, treat her good, and it will turn into wood. Okay, just a couple more. 
This is called the insecticide in him. Leaning against the stubborn shed, my brother looks right and sinister with his shirt untucked. He is a hopscotch skip away, speculating what a second tongue tastes like, the contents of a schoolgirl's skirt, about babies, how one plus one makes three. He clacks his gum, his tongue a pin in a pink balloon. With a start, he pulls a firefly from a marmalade jar, a pulse of magic and flint blaring Sunday, Sunday, Sunday on his knuckle. In this light, he looks more like an x-ray of a boy. He stares square into the insect glow, twists its wings and tosses them back into the air snaps his fists closed and holds its half-beam body to my nose so I can see. Its insides are a contortionist kiss, the sorry smell of blood and iron. He says witches live in their guts. He is always teaching me these things, like how the business section makes the best floating boats, and some stars even wear belts. How when the man comes home to the wife, he fits perfectly inside. And this poem is a sort of love poem, but um, it's spoken in the voice of the wife of a human cannonball from the circus. And it's called Singing the Cannonball to Sleep. At night, he sleeps with his mouth just open and his helmet fastened tight. See how he hugs his knees, harm hibernating in his hands there, always prepared to give the ready sign. With the light slipped into something more comfortable, the dark now pulled up to our chins and our children's things on the carpet the paddle ball, the army man, the duck you must pull with a string. Those leftovers from a day of ravenous play all watch as he talks from within a dream. Something about hopelessness, heftlessness, taking to the top, the man-made sky of the tent. Sleep is his most difficult stunt. But each time since our first time, this is how I lull him. I tilt back, fill my mouth with pine needles, clay, a copper coin. And when we kiss, I slip my tethers in, say, rest your perilous head. And for the first time that day, he can finally feel some weight. Gravity's good fortune no longer eluding him, his two felled feet no longer neglecting the ground. Thank you. That's it for me. And up next is Amber Kaplan. Stacy. Oh, hello. 
Um, it's my first time hearing Stacy Reed. I've, I've heard a lot about her from many different people. Uh, and um, you're a really great poet. Where'd you go? I've had alcohol. Oh, there you are. <laughs> um, I am an honorary member of Sarah Lawrence <laughs> by way of sneaking into a class one time, which was one of the greatest experiences of my life. I was in New York uh, doing press for just one of the greatest films ever called The Grudge 2. Um, and, uh, and I actually faked being sick uh, and told uh, Sony that I was very ill and lied and went to uh, uh, in order to go to a Sarah Lawrence class and uh, and sit on one of Jeff's Jeff McDaniel's classes. Um, Jeff's one of my favorite poets and very good friends so it was really exciting for me and uh, I actually met a, a couple great poets out of that and I feel like anyone who gets to take a class with him is is uh, pretty special so I'm like 190th special <laughs> via that class. Um, let's see. Dear Demographic, I'd like to say as a former member of your clique and a current member of your representation, I know it's hard to be a young woman ages 18 to 24 years old. They put you in a time slot that doesn't reflect your views with a rating system that doesn't represent your truths. Listen. From one cynical self-hater by default to another. Stop with the 20th century redux. Make your own era. You are not out of your own league. Fake eyelashes will not get you Ryan Gosling. <laughs> I've tried. Nor will sporting a Barack Obama keychain. No need to break all the rules, just bend them into balloon animals. Give them to your little brothers and sisters, show them how silly and cute American culture is. Time will naturally deflate it all. Start mosh pits in the crowded thoughts of tycoons. Stir something up with your tongue. Sip someone else's logic and then spit it out, preferably when they're looking. <laughs> Taste test your own style. Get your mind into the gutters of others. Search for the things they let go down the drain or threw away. Everyone's scared to tell you how they really feel, including Oprah. Stop getting wasted and throwing up your individuality outside of a club. There is no fast food to help you cope with that. Leave your mark on the world with something that can't be chosen from a tattoo book of Chinese symbols for the lower back. Pierce something other than your skin. When I tell you to think for yourself, don't give a shit what I say. Is, uh, I, I forget that at bookstores people don't clap between poems and every time Stacy read a poem I, I felt like yelling, take it off! <laughs> it just didn't feel right. <laughs> anyway, Stacy, after this, you and me. <sighs> um, Here's a really, I've, I've made this into a poem, it's not a poem, but it's a book inscription f that my first book, Free Stallion, I gave to uh, one of the Cohen brothers for No Country for Old Men when I auditioned for a role in that. And uh, I was really excited because they're some of my favorite directors. And um, 
So I wrote this in a book and then I wrote it down later because I realized that that would make kind of an interesting poem of some sort. So this is all it is. It's, it's nothing. I don't even know why I'm giving it an explanation. Book inscription for one half of the Cohen brothers. Dear Mr. Ethan Cohen, in the interest of time and saving paper, here's something to read while you're on the crapper. You're the shit. Up yours truly, Amber Tamblin. <laughs> I did not get that part. Nope. <laughs> um... This is for uh, another poet in Los Angeles named Mindy Nettafee, who's uh, my blonde doppelganger and one of my, my best friends. Um, and I wrote this for her. It's called The Eve of a Presidency. You get to laugh at an expense this morning. Today, anything is funny at the expense of everything. There's a permanent cotton candy glaze over my eyes, a pound cake of throbbing yeses at the bottom of my tailbone. New York buildings are whispering in each other's fire escapes, their jaws dropping ladders to the floor. Yeah, that's right. I'm wearing my jeans with no panties on. They're deep sea diving in the current of my lover's thread count. Before the left tit ache of an election comes back to taste us once more, I'm gonna leave his apartment, walk down Essex Street under beautiful morning sunlight and leave a trail of life vests behind me. Let the wind double dutch in my hair. I just realized you said double dutch in a poem. Sweet. I long for the sigh you make just before turning off the television. I miss the way a dance floor can't find its rhythm in your presence. The way you hold a glass of red. The way you say, seriously? If your tongue was a postcard, I'd stamp you. If the crack of your ass was a fault line, I'd 7.2. Someday our deaths will make all the tomorrows stop to look over their shoulders. Until then, I'm the museum where your big picture is worth a fortune. I just folded a bunch of stuff while you were reading, Stacy, and I hope I... I hope I chose right. Um, let's see. How about this? Uh, how about a poem about being an actress? <laughs> Who cares? Uh, this is called um, My Face. My Face is a trillion dollar industry annually. It carries more advertisement guilt than post 9-11. My neck is a support beam bigger than Madonna's shoulders. My tongue's gone into hiding, afraid it might be the next thing to get cut out, like chin fat and carbohydrates. My spiritual deficit has tripled in size. Stockbrokers would call it alarming. God would call it the end of a lunch break. Indian Nation would call it that bitch payback. I have wrinkles at 22 years old because they were pointed out to me in the first place. And for an unlimited time only, I can make them worse with a lifetime supply of Diet Coke and no self-esteem. 
My happiness comes for free with a mail-in rebate that's more expensive than a president's dream. I've got skin soothers, blackhead removers, and night vision goggles for detecting Charlie in the potholes of my pores. It's a war zone in my T-zone, and Neutrogena's got the nuke. My face runs its own nonprofit organization to help my cheeks raise awareness and fight laugh lines. Your favorite tabloid is my philanthropist. I subscribe to their eating disorder. Get on my actress's diet. I'm trying to get back to my birth weight. I pass it on to other young girls so they can learn how to smile with their rib cage too. How to go on a hunger strike in protest of celebrity anorexia. Because I am a giver. I share my trillion dollar market with the disheartened. I bond with them over falling apart. It keeps us together like estrogen pills and age 60 like a starlet and a fading star. I am a giver. I've got a $1.7 trillion face. That's worth more than the fight against AIDS. It's been tucked more times than a model's spine between her legs. Women's rights look to my face for advice on how to be uptight. I am your embassy of product placement. Wear me, little girl. About a tweet. Look at all of you tweeting twits, relishing in the whoredom of immediacies. You've evacuated your brains, lazy sleuths. I am sad for your pens. <laughs> Turning to ropes for Ian Curtis. Turning to ropes, his body didn't sway. The chair didn't look up, the room only cleared its throat with a creak. Turning to ropes, his skin bloomed an emerald heirloom soft. A fashionable scarf of a scar would form the trend-setting of his throat. The royal colors of Saturn's rings. A rusty halo that lost its grip and fell from the height of his skull. Ten stories of vertebrae to its death at the nape of his neck. A bloody horseshoe clanging around a tired voice. Footprints of a thousand blue jays running finish lines across his Adam's apple. The shape of a noose is the shadow of a single petal, is a balloon crashing back to earth, is a boxer's glove defeated, is the staccato of a tongue, is a champion's racket, is a dangling spoon with a reflection, is one flame curling into itself before going out. Nothing would have made you happier than the thought of me finding nothing sadder than the thought of your guitar without you. Um... I think I'll do, uh, what, I don't know, I lose track of time. One more piece? I think I'll do one more piece. That means two pieces, but I'll do one more piece. Um, Jeff, there's no way in hell that I'd get you to read The Jerk tonight. 
Is that in any of your books here? Because I'll read hate a love poem, and then I feel like uh, you can totally make me look like an asshole with that poem. Um, you won't? I think that's an excellent fucking poem. I know. Let's, let's do this. this. This poem is for Jeffrey McDaniel. Hate a love poem. I've decided to relinquish the rest of the year to heartache. 2006 worked hard and deserve it, so please think of England when you close your eyes, because the debt of grief in mine is about to pay you final notice. I'm getting you off of my chest like dead weight. I'm getting you out of my system like the lithium you need to get into yours. Even if you owe me nothing, your nothingness owns me. The last time we slept together felt like it would be. It was a great birthday present. Thank you. Your sex is a broken slot machine that will never change. It's as intimate as a business card. Loving you is a casino where sad people spend time waiting for kings to show up. Buying into you was a supermarket of regrets. Spit poet. That's not a line, but it sounded slammy. I had to say that. Heartbreaking is a habit you were never broken of. You're one internet cafe away from the truth. You've got more secrets than cells have stems. I sit in fast food bathrooms just to remember your smell. I get cheap, cheap manicures just to rekindle your touch. You're cheap. That's what that means. <laughs> I know your back better than your own shadow. My fist thinks you're ugly and would tell you to your face. I'd sleep with your friends if you had any. <laughs> I'm not even angry yet, just scared to tell you how I really feel. You know. I'm a death threat tied to a rock thrown through the window of your opportunities. In the spectrum of my infinity, you are an all-time black. Your guilt's so heavy you could tie a noose and hang your conscience from it. You led my legs on, invited my insecurities over for the holidays. Do your future children a favor by not having them. I'd sooner end your life than this poem. Why don't you make me? I'd like to see you try in general. I'm not jealous of your new lover. She's just another ring in your dead tree stump. Now she can enjoy you, little yard sale. She gets to wear your mother's old clothes. She gets to rummage around in my hand-me-downs, like I did in the bargain racks before me. You put the you back in. Fuck you. <laughs> All right, I'm going to do one last poem. <laughs> that was really hard, too. <laughs> Jeff, I love you. Um, this is just from a, from a new book that I'm working on. Um, and hey, thanks to, to Skylight, to the bookstore, and uh, you know, letting us read here. This is super awesome, and we encourage more people to go to poetry shows and to cuss in general. This is called Hearsay. I'm told Joni Mitchell took my newborn baby feet into her palms, called them sweet cashews and kissed their souls. 
I lay there in my father's arms, a sedated frog, a fleshy spit of fresh molecule juice. I'm told my body is shaped like a renaissance. Every socket holds a potential revolution. My gait sinks to preludes in the key of D minor. I'm told women have more nerve endings in their hands than men. That this is a scientific fact. I'm told Galileo wept at how big his hands looked, how small they felt while pointing at the stars. A book written by every one of God's representatives tells me salvation is for everyone but God. I'm told your poems are about me. All of them. Even when they're about Jennifer. Even when dedicated to mother. I was told we met in the 90s. You shook my hand and told me I would not remember you saying that I am the love of your life. I'm told in 38 years I will lose a child. The psychic on Astor Place only charged me $10 out of sympathy. I'm told we should write more vague prayers for rock stars and send them up into the sky on helium balloon strings. She was told you kept her letters like bazooka gum wrappers. You broke her cigarette heart like an addict you thought could be saved. I took her in my arms that night and melted a warm tongue across her ear until she was drowning in the deafness of O, oh, until my poetry pulsed from her face like French euros in a fountain in Flagstaff. I told her the only thing you know how to love is the sound of cheap plastic heels on pavement. That as a lover, you are simple. I made sure you were told. I'm told there's a balcony where my old dresses are hung to dry in Detroit. I'm told they buried the body with the garter belt on. Thank you. Uh, it is a really massive privilege for me to introduce um, one of my favorite, favorite living writers and poets, uh, someone who deeply influenced this book and helped me with this book, and uh, is just one of the one of the best people I know, but also. I mean, I'll say it one more time. I'll repeat myself. One of the best writers I know. It's really a privilege for me. Ladies and gentlemen, Jeffrey McDaniel. Hi. Thanks. Um, thank you to Skylight Books for making this event possible. And it's wonderful to read with Amber and Stacy. Um, and Amber did sneak into my class, and that was a lot of fun. And your work is wonderful. You guys are both wonderful poets, and it's great to to see your work growing and getting stronger. And Stacy was um, a student of mine. You know, they they uh, people sometimes talk about what's the role of a poetry reading. Is there any kind of pedagogical, you know? Uh, benefit from from poetry readings and Stacy I remember was going to do a public reading we have this little series called 6 by 6 and she's going to do a reading when she was a, a sophomore and suddenly the idea of getting up and sharing her work made her revise in this way that I'd never seen before and 
I don't know what she did. She went away for the weekend and she just worked and worked and worked and she turned some kind of corner and she never looked back and she was just, um, it's so wonderful. We were, we read together in LA when you were a student, remember? About seven years ago and you have just done work so hard and it's great and your work has bloomed and it's um, an honor to read with both of you. Uh, Amber, I'll read a few old poems and some new ones. Amber, uh, requested this poem. It's called The Benjamin Franklin of Monogamy, and it's actually about a Sarah Lawrence person, class of 1990. That's all I'll say. It's called The Benjamin Franklin of Monogamy. Reminiscing in the drizzle of Portland, I noticed the ring that has landed on your finger, a massive insect of glitter. A chandelier shining at the end of a long tunnel. Thirteen years ago, you hid the hurt under the blanket of your voice and said, I guess there are two kinds of women, those you write poems about and those you don't. It's true, I never slid sonnets under your door or served you haiku in bed. My idea of courtship was tapping Jane's addiction lyrics in Morse code on your window at 300 a.m., whiskey doing push-ups on my breath. But I worked within the confines of my character, cast as the bad boy in your life, the Magellan of your dark side. We don't have a past so much as a bunch of electricity, power never put to good use. The phrase, what we had together, makes it sound like a virus, as if we caught one another like a flu, and desire was merely a symptom that could be treated with soup and lots of sex. Gliding beside you now, though, I feel like the Ben Franklin of monogamy. I should tell you, I was a student at Sarah Lawrence. I've been a professor for 11 years, so this was, I was a student there for four years, so that's what I mean. <laughs> that would be really weird. God, that would be weird even for me. That, uh, that would be like if I was a teacher in the 60s, that would be kosher. Um, Gliding beside you now, I feel like the Ben Franklin of monogamy, as if I invented it. But I'm still not immune to your waterfall scent, have not developed antibodies for your smile. I don't know how long regret existed before humans hammered a word on it, or how many paper towels it would take to wipe up the Pacific Ocean, or why the light of a candle being blown out travels faster than the luminescence of one that's freshly lit. But I do know all are huffing and puffing into each other's throat, as if the heart was a birthday cake covered with trick candles didn't make the silence any easier to navigate. I'm sorry all the kisses I scribbled on your neck were written in disappearing ink. I'm sorry this poem took 13 years to reach you. Sometimes I thought of you so hard, one of your legs would pop out of my ear on the subway. And when I slept, you'd press your face against the porthole of my submarine. I wish that just once 
instead of joyriding over flesh, we'd put our hands away like chocolate to be saved for later and deciphered the calligraphy of each other's eyelashes, translated a paragraph from the volumes of what couldn't be said. Of course, I couldn't send her that poem because we both were in relationships. So she's never seen. I'll read one poem from this book. Now, this is called Heavy Breather Zoo. It's an outreach project that I'm involved in. Um, whatever happened to the heavy... Do you guys know what heavy breathers are? Some of the younger people may not. They were sort of perverts that were uh, indigenous to the 1970s. Um, they would call housewives and they would just like... They would just go like... Whoever... Did anyone here ever get one a call like that? You still get them now, but can't you figure out who they are? Okay, so they're still around. All right. Okay. Uh, I just learned something. <laughs> Whatever happened to the heavy breather, technology, star 69, caller ID, the internet, has rendered his kink obsolete. Who can he dial now? He is the eight track of deviance. <laughs> He tried launching filthy messages in the naughty housewife chat room, but they just treated him like he was normal, which was damn near a death blow. Should we gather up the last few still out there, breathing all heavy in the wild, before they go extinct, place them in a special zoo in cages complete with rotary phones, unplugged, of course, and nondescript apartment furniture crumpled up sandwich wrappers to recreate the natural habitat. Perhaps a plaque that reads, here sits the heavy breather. He used to call housewives in the afternoon, turn his breath into a fog machine. He lived for that first intake of air, the gasp that escaped her mouth like a weather balloon as his fog traveled through her. Let's see what we have over here. This poem is called Beware of the Dark Sedan Idling Inside You. <laughs> I flick a switch, out flashes the light bulb, like God snapping his fingers in my face. Wake up, pumpkin head. I've been running around half naked with the rest of America, wearing only a credit card and a cashmere scarf. Arf, arf. Yesterday I went into Circuit City's going out of business sale to revel in the fall of capitalism. But all I saw were the sad faces of underpaid workers. Welcome to the land of the free fall and the free baser, as well as the freelancer and freeloader and front-loading washing machine where you can empty your conscience and wash out all those illicit thoughts about illegal immigrants out of your brain where it's still okay to dock your canoe at the racist joke island at cocktail parties and chuckle. Two housewives bang prescription medicine bottles together and whisper cheers. A homeless man gets a boner while sleeping on a steam grate. An hour opens its trench coat and shows you its minutes. There's a dark car idling inside you. 
The question is, do you get in? This poem doesn't quite have a full title yet right now. It's called Conditionals. It's kind of a little experiment. If you can't take the heat, stay out of the kitchen. If you can't take the kitsch, stay out of the gift shop. If you can't take the guillotine, stay out of the guilt. If you can't take the guilt trip, stay out of the narrative. If you can't take the narcissism, stay out of the mirror. If you can't take the miracle, stay out of the mire. If you can't take the mirage, stay out of the desert. If you can't take the desecration, stay out of the bedroom. If you can't take the bedlam, stay out of the pillbox. If you can't take the pills, stay out of the plunder. If you can't take the plunge, stay out of the chapel. If you can't take the chatter of teeth, stay out of the freezer. If you can't take the freestyle, stay out of the cipher. If you can't take the sci-fi, stay out of the Spielberg. If you can't take the spiel, stay out of the showroom. If you can't take the shove, stay out of the accusation. If you can't take the ache, stay out of the land belonging to the heart. Uh, this is a poem. I wrote this poem after seeing the poet Terence Hayes, like we were talking, and then about 10 minutes later I wrote this poem, but I don't think there's a, there's a, um, a relation there. It's called Kicking the Lust Bucket. Rising in a cafe in Pittsburgh, I feel a man's eyes press into my chest as I slide an arm into my overcoat. I do not recoil from his wounded gaze, like when I was 12, hustling home, wet-haired from swim practice, men perched on corners in tight pants, eyes rolling around in their heads like the steel balls on roulette wheels, cars prowling in engorged circles, thorned eyes peering through smeared windshields at my porcelain cheeks. I do not recoil from the hunger in the man's eyes, the look that is three-quarters pain and one-quarter desire like his foot is clamped in a steel trap and his eyes are begging for release. I do not judge the man his hunger, but I do not lean into it either. Do not sprinkle a thimble of kerosene into his broiled heat just to watch his face flame up and flicker. I remember an old landlord in California planting jonquils in the common soil between our doors, his sinewy, shirtless chest, tattoos roving across his skin glisten. How I tilted a hip, conjured a blush, wondered if my lip taunt made the broken glass in his loin reassemble into a bottle I might feign to sip from. I button my coat. I cannot help this man. Even if I bent over and wrapped my hands around his swollen purple foot and released it from that shark jaw tension, it wouldn't help.
Lust is a bucket that never stays filled. A drop always spills, and all the bucket feels is the absence of that drop radiating outward like the phantom throb of a permanently popping capillary. I have another dark sedan poem called Happy Marriage. You're sitting on the sofa. Your husband is upstairs, your child sleeping. There are dishes in the sink with your name on them. A dark sedan pulls up to the curb of your mind. You know you should turn and run the other way, but you don't. You stand there, the blackened rear window rolls down. It's a boy you knew in high school holding a rose. The door opens, you climb in. Your husband upstairs doesn't hear the car screech away. In the dark sedan, there's a replica of the boy's room, balled up gym socks on the floor. You climb onto the sheetless mattress. His mouth roves over you like a searchlight. Through the blackened windows of the sedan, you see your husband come down the stairs. He's holding a dirty plate with your name on it. You bend your knees and pull your legs back. A movie of this moment is projected onto the vinyl ceiling. You struggle to breathe. The sedan accelerates around a corner. Your husband calls you into the kitchen, his words like a leash around your neck. You straighten up and walk over. The tremor in your shoulder is the echo of the boy galloping inside you. It's a little short poem about eyebrows. Kate Winslet's eyebrows are the arms of an Olympic swimmer in the last length of the butterfly. Winona Ryder's eyebrows are safety pins holding her face together. The field worker's eyebrows are sweat rags stitched directly into his forehead. John Keats's eyebrows are two maple coffins being carried across a field of snow. The devil's eyebrows are knitted from the nose hairs of infants. And your eyebrows are church benches. I want to be carved into like initials. Um, now I'll read a few poems from like the weirdest series I've ever written. Actually, I've never really written a poetic sequence, but this is like a, a series of poems in the voice of an American cuckold. And uh, they're like 15 poems about him sort of coming to accept his cuckoldness. Um, and I don't think they're autobiographical, <laughs> but I'm not, I'm pretty sure that they're not. So this is him like, uh, but I really don't know where they've come from. But this is him, like, um, his father sitting him down when he's, like, 13. And his father sort of telling him how it's he's telling him the birds and the bees about him being a cuckold. So it's like a cuckold to be, a cuckold in training, you might say. Um, so the first couple of lines are, are in the character's voice, and then it's the father takes over. The birds and the bees 
When I hit 13, the noun between my legs began turning into a verb, and my father sat me down and said, One day you will have a wife of your own. A man will come, a helpful neighbor knocking, while you're at work perhaps, or a garlicky colleague at an office party, or a lifeguard on a spit of sand. And that man will have your beloved, perhaps even in your bed. But that won't mean you're weak. Remember our great ancestor, Menelaus, biceps the size of grapefruits, his chest far hairier than that pretty boy who slipped in and swiped his wife like a callow lily from his lapel. Remember Marcus Aurelius's words, reject your sense of injury, and the injury itself disappears. No need to launch another Trojan just because some stallion trotted into her. No need to perish like Pushkin slumped in ice. Begin preparing now. When friends sleep over, let them take your bed. Never yell shotgun. The back seat will file your ego down so when your birthright happens and you see your wife with that glazed, satiated look in her eyes, the sweat of his trigger-happy fingers still greasing the white napkin of her thighs, you can settle into that moment. Ask her how it was, if you can observe next time. Um, this is the cuckold sees the bigger picture. In chimpanzee tribes, three or four males handle the majority of the mating. I collect leaves. I guard the perimeter. What's comforting about a hierarchy is not being on top, but rather knowing your place in it. Anyway, there's a couple of... Uh, I, the cock, the, oh, this is a California poem. The cuckold contemplates the Malibu fires. <laughs> the fire chooses the coastline because it enjoys its own reflection, its thousand licking tongues lashing across the rippling hips of the sea. The moon's borrowed light suddenly seems inferior. The fire whispers to the moon, see how your woman writhes for me? The moon sits stoically like a husband, knowing this blast of passion will pass, that even this luster, undeniable in its heat, will be gone in 48 hours, and then it will be moon and ocean again, sharing an early dinner, before he kisses her foamy shoulders and rises for work. I'm not going to read the cuckold watches the NBA finals, because... <laughs> It's like there's some Chris Bosch reference. This is called Interview with a Cuckold, and it's the last one in the little sequence. So there's like an interviewer, um, probably not Barbara Walters. I'm not sure who would be interviewing the cuckold. How do you sit there and watch your wife with other men? Every man secretly imagines his wife being passed around a peer group like a new pair of binoculars trained on a red feathered bird. So you don't consider it a betrayal? This whole thing is built on trust. What is this exactly? 
a forest of goosebumps. How long have you been trapped in this forest? My wife is a chainsaw. She was born to chop wood. And what were you born to do? I'm the one who sees the tree fall down in the forest. I'm the one who makes it real. Sort of weird poems. I'll finish with a couple of poems from here. Um, let's see. This is a poem about... Well, this is called Compulsively Allergic to the Truth. I'm sorry I was late. I was pulled over by a cop for driving while blindfolded with a raspberry-scented candle flickering in my mouth. I'm sorry I was late. I was on my way when I felt a plot thickening in my arm. I have a fear of heights. Luckily, the earth is on the second floor of the universe. I am not the Eggman. I am the owl who just witnessed another tree fall over in the forest of your life. I am your father shaking his head at the thought of you. I am his words dissolving in your mind like footprints in a rainstorm. I am a long-legged martini. I am feeding olives to the bull inside you. I am decorating your labyrinth, tacking up snapshots of all the people who've gotten lost in your corridors. And the last poem I'll read is a poem that is a persona poem. I like to write persona poems because they kind of let me get out of my own... Uh, I, I mean, I think even poems that are in the first person that don't, aren't persona poems, there you can you can kind of have some latitude with who's speaking. Um, but this one is in the voice of a, a stick of butter. <laughs> and it's called self... And I guess what's behind it is that idea of like, you know, um, having a kid and like the fear, the anxiety of the 24-7-ness of it all, like the idea that you have to be there all the time if you... Um, if you're not there, then like, what's going to happen? Like, I always thought I'd be a better uncle, because um, you can come in and like be the uncle for a little while and leave. But um, actually, uh, I, my daughter's now almost five, and it, I've actually been able. To, I have this poem is kind of about being, the fear of melting, and uh, but you're you're able to pull it together somehow usually. So anyway, it's called self-portrait as a stick of butter or the four-day anniversary of my daughter's birth. I am a stick of butter. I have not been cut into yet, but I have been unwrapped. I'm in the fridge in a plastic tray that says butter. There's nothing in here except a jar with a single olive. It's so dark. I don't know that olive, all round and perfect in its glass. I wish someone would open the door and spread me over a warm piece of toast. I'm afraid I'll be left out overnight on the kitchen table and will melt into a puddle useless. Someone will enter and say, yuck, look at this chemical junk. I'll say I'm not all chemicals. There's good in me, too. In fact, I'm somewhat organic. 
but perhaps the someone is right. I close my eyes, count to 100. I tighten my muscles, concentrate, become solid again, uncut, a sturdy stick of butter back in the dish's cradle, the olive glimmering like that hint of moon visible on a moonless night. Thank you. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.